Well, I have to begin with a, a bit of a confession. Uh, I think that oftentimes in my preaching, as I've been kind of reflecting over my sermons as of late, I think that um, I've spent maybe a little bit too much time being critical of the American church. And so I want you all to know that I do plan on uh, doing less of that, but not today. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean that uh, very seriously, um, because I, I just can't help but notice that American Christianity is dying from a disease of celebrity obsession. And it's just amazing to me the way we have celebritized, if I can make up a word on the spot here, the way we have celebritized Christianity. And I think to, to a certain degree this isn't new. Um, without getting into a huge rabbit trail, I, I think that this is part of the reason why we have these local bishops in the second century rise to these great places of authority that, just in my personal opinion, are not found in the New Testament. And I think it's because they were the, the leaders of the day just naturally. They were the thinkers, the writers, the defenders. People were relying upon them so much that they just sort of naturally gravitated to these great bishoprics of seeing, overseeing huge regions of churches. And, but uh, whether you agree with that or not, I, I think it's clearly to say that at least in our culture, uh, American Christianity is all about celebrity status. Pastors have become rock stars. The kind of money they're making, the kind of fashion that they wear and, and portray, the way our churches are designed to build them up as these great motivational speakers and people all around the country are trying to fill out, figure out which one of these pastors you follow and who you're listening to. And what makes this so unfortunate is that we raise these men, we raise these pastors onto such pedestals that unfortunately in the times when they fall, it wrecks things. It ruins things because we have so much hope and confidence in these men. And we're seeing these rock stars, these celebrity pastors fall left and right. And what I mean by fall is either engage in serious disqualifying sin or drift off into gross theological error. As a matter of fact, one uh, writer from a very well-known Christian publication was, was writing and commenting on how we have these amazingly popular celebrity Christian pastors who are just falling uh, like all around us. And this is what they wrote in a particular uh, publication of this magazine. They said, many evangelical institutions are beholden to the power of celebrity and charismatic men and have staked too much of their future on the success of those men, regardless of potential wrongdoings. There can be a fear that if bad news comes out about those men, it will harm the spread of the gospel. And so we hide their mistakes and we try to cover up their mistakes because they're selling too many books. We can't allow them to be disqualified. They're, they are the face of this organization. And they're bringing thousands of people to our online church family so we can't afford to lose them. If you would open your Bibles up to Titus chapter 1. This is one of our famous a very well-known passage in the New Testament because it's one of two that very specifically addresses what we call the qualifications for the pastoral ministry. And what you are going to find is that pastors are not rock stars. They're not celebrities. And we're going to look at 
the qualifications for pastors. And, and, and just to give you a heads up before we get into it, uh, how we're going to preach the sermon, um, there's a big list of qualifications. Some I think are fairly self-explanatory, and there's some that I think need some explanation or detail. So we're just going to kind of go through the list, explain them, and then at the end, it'll be sort of a three-point sermon. I'm, I, I want to give us three takeaways. So it is a three-point sermon. It's just going to take us a while to get to the points, is what I'm saying. But if you would, open up to Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. We will read through verse 9, although most of verse 9 we're going to save for our sermon next week. But we will still cover through verse 9. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, that as our text, if, if, if you were to take some time this week, you can compare this to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes to Timothy and gives him the list of pastoral qualifications, and you'll see Paul's amazing consistency. Uh, these lists are nearly identical. Uh, there's really two kinds of differences between the lists. Sometimes Paul will give the same qualification in 1 Timothy, just using different wording, but he's saying the exact same thing. You will find a couple differences that are, they're not contradictory, but they're, they are different. And I think next week, especially as we get into that, we'll see why Paul had to... Timothy was in a different context than Titus, so he was emphasizing something different as he wrote to these men. But largely, on the whole, these lists are definitely not contradictory, and largely they are incredibly similar. They're, they're essentially the exact same thing. So Paul's been amazingly consistent as he has told Titus the qualifications for the elder, or the pastor. And as, as a matter of fact, you'll notice, if, if you're reading in the ESV, he says elder in verse uh, 5. And then he says overseer in verse 7. These are different Greek words, but because of the way they're used here, this is why the vast majority of you know, Bible scholars see these as being the same office. The, the pastor, the elder, the bishop, these are the same office. The same words are being used here. The, the ESV chooses elder and overseer for their own particular reasons. But we see the qualification given to pastors. And the first thing we notice that Paul believes authority matters. Paul believes leadership matters. Anytime a group of people have any kind of shared vision, whether it's a local church or a business or a family, you need leadership. Because we, we, we briefly talked about this two weeks ago, but if you look in verse 5, remember Paul had gone through Crete and kind of done the groundwork, the, the, the beginning stages of preaching the gospel and planting churches. But obviously, for whatever reason, he had to leave before he could really get things in order. So that's why he sent Titus to Crete to, to finish the job that Paul started. So Paul sees a church, churches throughout the island of Crete that are new and that are kind of in shambles, if we, if we can put it that way, right? And so they need structure, they need order. And so Paul knows, first and foremost, what they need. If, if we want this thing to keep going, if we want this thing to, to, to stay on the right track, they need leaders. 
You need to put in order what I left there and first things first, appoint some elders. They need pastors. So Paul thinks that healthy pastors, healthy leadership is vital to the success of the local church. It's very important to have healthy elders, sound elders. And so in order for Titus to to know who should I appoint, who should I give this duty to, Paul says, here's the kind of people you're looking for. And so he breaks into these qualifications. And before we look at all of these explicit qualifications, I want us to notice something in our culture that's very important for us to see what is implicitly taught here. And that is, first and foremost, they need to be men. Paul presupposes that they are men, right? He describes them as being, in verse 6, the man of one wife. In, In the Greek, the word husband and wife is the same exact word for man or woman, In English, we have to let the context decide whether we translate it husband and man, but they use the exact same word. So this could be read as the man of one woman. He's a man. He even describes him in verse 7 as a a he. He must not be arrogant. So pastors need to be, first and foremost, biological men. And we won't turn there for now. I don't want us to spend all of our time on this, but you can read, if if you remember, as Pastor Jesse worked through the beginning of 1 Timothy before I moved here, Paul made this explicitly clear at the end of 1 Timothy 2 when he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority, but she must learn in submissiveness and quietness. We are surrounded by a culture today in American Christianity that loves to exalt and anoint women and appoint them as pastors of their churches. And you need to understand, that is not biblical. No matter how rampant it gets, no matter how popular it becomes, no matter how commonplace it feels, Paul would not do that. And Paul is certainly our authority. He's certainly Titus' authority, right? Titus is taking all his cues from what Paul wants for the churches. So first and foremost, pastors need to be men. That is not to say just because you're a man you're qualified, as we'll see. That's not to say women have no place in ministry, But women are not called to be pastors. But we press on to the more explicit things. He he mentions in verse 5, or forgive me, in verse 6, that if anyone is above reproach. And what we need to see here is that the being above reproach is sort of the the broad stroke, right? That's that's the, the, the one single qualification for a pastor, is the pastor must be above reproach. It's the single qualification. And then what Paul does is, okay, well, I'm going to help you understand what it would look like to be above reproach. So all of the rest of this list are sort of bullet points of being above reproach. It's how is it that I as a man become an, a, a, a man that's above reproach? And we'll notice this does not mean that he's perfect. The the Christian church would not exist anywhere on the face of the earth if pastors were supposed to be perfect. I mean, you you should have seen the look on my wife's face this week as I was trying to convince her from the text that I am not a perfect person. She just couldn't believe it. It was just, it was a new revelation for her. I'm not sure if she's really still comprehended it yet. Um, But I I, I had to labor to teach her that I'm not perfect and, and no pastor is perfect. But they do, they have to be above reproach. And that phrase just simply means that, generally speaking, as, as you examine the life of a pastor, there should be no obvious red flags. There should be no holes in that person's life, obvious things that stick out as being gross immaturities and patterns of sinfulness. Above reproach, there's nothing to criticize this person for, generally speaking. Again, we're all sinners. We all have something you could criticize. But generally speaking, these are people that we're confident saying, look at them, that's the kind of faith you're going for. 
And that might sound arrogant, but the book of Hebrews says, know your leaders, imitate their faith. There is nothing arrogant about putting a human being in our context up and saying, I want to have a faith like them. I want to be like them. That is not idolatry. The Bible calls us to imitation. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And even though he was an apostle, he he still wasn't perfect. So Paul's saying, I'm an imperfect person, but you should still imitate my faith. And the book of Hebrews says, know your leaders and imitate your faith. So to be above reproach means these are people that I want my children to grow up and have a faith like them. And so he breaks that qualification down. What does it really look like specifically to be above reproach? Well, he begins with probably the most controversial one on the list in church history. And that is, he says that anyone who's above reproach, the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. A man of one woman. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time getting into all the nitty-gritty details. This is a qualification that for the last 2,000 years of church history has been uh, debated immensely. Because the problem is, is the Greek, as, as I've been saying over and over again, is very, very generic, right? This is a one-woman man. So what does that mean? What, what does it mean for a man to have one woman? And so there's been a lot of different things. People have said that this is talking about polygamy. A man can't be a polygamist to be a pastor. Um, some people throughout church history have said this is a man who can never remarry because even if the divorce was a, a righteous divorce, like your, your spouse passed on and you remarry, you're no longer qualified to be a pastor because now you're a two-woman man. Um, so any remarriage is sometimes seen as being you are not qualified to be a pastor. And there's probably six or seven different interpretations throughout church history that people have argued pretty passionately for. Um, but I just want to tell you what is um, our position and I think is most contextually consistent. And that is I think we tend to make way too big of a deal of the grammar here outside of his context than we mean. I don't think that this passage is speaking about divorce at all. I don't even think it's speaking about polygamy. It certainly does refute polygamy, right? If, if someone is a polygamist, they cannot be a pastor. This text does. But I don't think that's necessarily what Paul had in mind. Like, I don't think Paul was saying, oh, there's a bunch of polygamists in Crete. I better make sure that Titus doesn't make any of those guys. I, I don't think that's what's happening. So it does refute polygamy. It, that's not the, the intention. Remember, the context here is he's talking about men who are leading the church and he begins by saying you need to look at their family life. The way they lead their families, that will give you the indication you need for how they're going to lead the church. And I believe it's made very explicitly in 1 Timothy 3 where he says, Paul says explicitly, how can you expect someone to lead the church well if they can't lead their family well? So family leadership is sort of the training ground for a pastor. And so to me, the one woman man, in the context of looking at a man in his relationship to his wife, how does his relationship to his wife prove to me that he can be trusted to lead all of these people in the church? And so what Paul is really addressing here is, is, is marital fidelity. He's addressing faithfulness to one woman here. If a pastor is sexually unfaithful to his wife, he has no business being a pastor. It doesn't mean he can't be forgiven of his sins. It doesn't mean he can't be a church member. It doesn't mean he can't be welcomed back into the congregation and fed the word of God. It doesn't mean he can't be saved. If I am ever unfaithful to my wife, you need to fire me immediately. If if I can't even be faithful to one woman, what makes you think I'm going to be faithful to all of you? 
A pastor is not to be meddling around with other women. He has made a promise to one woman and he is to be faithful to her. So this isn't talking about righteous divorce and remarriage and then whether the remarried people who had a, a righteous divorce can be, I don't think that's even addressed. Now, I think divorces can certainly play a factor into whether someone is qualified to be a pastor, but it's because of these other things that we would want to examine why is there a divorce? Why is there multiple divorces? So divorce can disqualify someone, but I think it is reading far too much into this little Greek phrase to say one woman, man, if you've ever been remarried under any circumstances, you're disqualified. I just don't think that's the context here. We're looking for biblical faithfulness marital faithfulness as a sign that they will be ecclesiastically faithful, faithful to the church. And and I just have to do a bit of a side note. When we see this, it's interesting. We know that um, obviously Paul here is operating under the assumption that most men are going to be married. We know that a man does not have to be married to be a pastor, right? Because some people have argued that from this text throughout church history. But we know that's not the case because the apostles considered themselves pastors and Paul was single. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul even talks about how, how much being single helps ministry. So this is not saying a man has to be married. And when we get into children, it's not saying a man has to have children. But Paul understands most of them will. And when they are married, that is a great avenue for examining their leadership and their holiness. And so that's why uh, the side trail I just have to get into is it astonishes me that the Roman Catholic Church for so many years has required celibacy among their ecclesiastical leaders. Paul here is under the impression that most of the men in the church are going to be married and that this is actually a great way to examine their leadership. And then all of a sudden, sometime during the medieval period, we start forcing men to not be married and to not have families that we look at for their leadership. It's astonishing. I one time heard a a priest in a debate say, well, that's because I don't consider myself single. I am married. I'm married to the church. I don't marry another woman because that would be infidelity to my true bride, which is the church. And that just sounds so pious. That sounds so good. But we have a big problem with our piety when it's too pious for Paul. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say, find all the single guys because they're already married or they're not married yet and they can't be taken by two wives. That's not what Paul says. Paul says quite the opposite. Paul doesn't think being married to the church is beautiful. Paul thinks being married to a woman, being faithful to her and leading her and raising godly children, that's beautiful to Paul. That's pious to Paul. That's true religion to Paul. And that gives Paul more confidence in your leadership than anything else. So let me just say, while men do not have to be married and have children to be pastors, I think that should be the general norm. I think that should be the general norm across our churches. They need to be married men who are faithful to their wives. And then that gets into another very debated text. Well, not as much, but a little debated text. His children are believers, continuing through verse 6. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The last part we sort of get, right? If, if a man is leading his, if he has children, he's leading his family and his children are not well behaved. They're out of control. They're undisciplined. They don't listen to their parents. Then Paul's perspective is, what makes us think that this is a man who's qualified to organize and run the church? And in many ways, this isn't so much a, uh, this isn't so much a, a slap on the hand as it, it is a blessing, right? 
if, if, if I had a bunch of children and they were unruly and disobedient and getting in trouble all the time, it would be a blessing for the church to say, listen, you need some free time. Like what's, what's more important to you right now? Maintaining your vocation, maintaining this, or fixing your family? In many ways, this is a gift for pastors to be relinquished from duties that are likely stressful and burdening them to focus on the problems in their family. So this isn't as much a punishment as it is a, a blessing. But the point being is the children cannot be out of control. They cannot be disobedient. However, what, what, what usually catches people's eye is this concept that they need to be believers, as the ESV puts it. The, the, the word there for the Greek is just the word faithful. It says they have to be faithful. And sometimes the word faithful is used in a context where it's not talking about your personal belief. Right? Sometimes faithful is used more for what we were just talking about, like being obedient. Um, but I agree with most of the translations that render this as they need to be Christians. And the reason people have a problem with this is because they say things like, I can't control someone's salvation. How can any human being, pastor or not, how can any human being be held accountable for whether their children believe? I can't make someone saved. If that was the case, the whole world would be saved. Just make everyone saved. But I think this is really overlooking uh, a couple important things here. Number one, um, when Paul talks about them being faithful or being believers, he's not talking about necessarily them truly being justified, but that they are embracing and professing the faith. Our children, for a man to be qualified, they, they need to be Christian children. And, and what's interesting about this is this is a reminder for us all. I, I've heard parents quite often throughout my history say things like, you know, well, I want my kids to believe, but I'm not going to make them go to church. I'm not going to, because I don't want to force it on them. Right? Um, I, 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 I understand a little bit of that, right? I get, we don't want our children just to believe in Christ because we say so. We want them to have their own faith. No one will ever be justified in the sight of God because their parents were believers. So I, I get that portion. But we have to see just biblically, this, just, this does, doesn't add up. You are called to raise your children in the faith. Pastors and men are called to raise Christian households. You are called to indoctrinate your children. You are called to raise them in the faith. It is not something you just say, hey, listen, this is my thing, but I'm going to let you choose, eight-year-old. And, and make no mistake about it, if you are not indoctrinating them, you are not just exalting them to this sphere of neutrality where they are free from indoctrination. If you don't indoctrinate them, the world will. If you don't force your beliefs on them, Satan will. Your child will never exist in some neutral capacity where they are just free to choose whatever they want and no one's trying to force them into anything. There's that old expression, you know, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. You might not be interested in forcing your, the faith of your fathers and yourself on your children, but the world is interested in forcing their faith on your children. Someone's coming after them. I hope their parents are protecting them from it. Raise your children in the Lord. Raise Christian children. Take them to church. Teach them the ways of the Lord. Discipline them in the faith. Pastors here are called to raise Christian children. Not just to say, well, he's not a child, but I don't want to force it on him. You know, he's not a Christian, but I don't want to force it. You know, it's got to be his choice. Why are you holding me accountable for that? Paul says, no, you are accountable. Your children need to be Christians, and you need to raise them that way. You raise their children in the Lord. Pastors need to be men. They need to be faithful to their wives. They need to raise Christian, respectful children. 
And then he begins again in verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. I think a lot of these are fairly self-explanatory. I think we understand what these mean, that pastor needs to be a humble man. He needs to be a man who is not quickly lashing out in anger. He needs to be a man who can control his drinking. He is not consumed by alcohol. This one about violence, it's interesting. Uh, I think this, this is generic for violence, right? If, um, if I start showing up to work with a black eye every day, I, I think there's cause for concern there. But what we find in church history is that pastors in the early church were not afraid oftentimes to exercise capital punishment so to speak, not uh, to, to corporate punishment on their congregations, meaning that one of the ways pastors were actually leading their churches was through violence, through, you know, the way we spank kids in school, where we used to spank kids in school. Pastors were actually trying to do that. They thought, I spank my children to disobey them when they're disobedient, so if I want to lead the church, I need to physically lead the church. And so I think many people in the other church use this to say, listen, if you've got a pastor going around with a stick and beating you into, into obedience, he needs to be fired, right? So, but, but I think that, that applies. As, as, as the elders here, myself and the other elders, we are never not only to be violent, but we should never use the threat of violence or try to intimidate the church into decisions. Intimidation and violence is unbecoming of the man of God. He's not to be violent. And, and this one's interesting. Pastors are not to be greedy. You realize we have an entire church movement today that has been nicknamed the prosperity gospel. In other words, what I'm trying to get at here is this little list of sins in verse 7, we, when we read it from a distance, it seems obvious. Like we think, did Titus really need to be told this? Was Titus looking for the, the drunkards at the bar? Was that who he was going after? Oh, the guy that beat me up last week because I took his parking spot. I want him to be my pastor. Quick-tempered, violent man. That sounds great. Doesn't this sound obvious? Who needs this to be said? We have a problem in the church. I want you to know this is not so obvious. We are seeing famous celebrity pastors be exposed on these very sins all over the place. It is very easy when someone is entertaining and charismatic and energetic and sells a lot of books and brings a lot of people to your church, it is very easy to overlook their sins and exalt them to this role. Very easy. We need to be constantly reminded of these lists. And again, I bring us back to the not greedy for gain. We think these are, oh yeah, of course, why would Titus want to make someone who's so greedy to be a pastor? We have a whole false religion spreading throughout the world right now because of greedy pastors. Half the church right now is plagued. Some of the most popular Bible teachers you can find on YouTube and Instagram, you read their church statements of faith and they will say something in there about how it's God's will for you to be financially prosperous. We have people writing greed into their statements of faith. These lists are not that obvious. We need to remember a a, a money-hungry man, a man who does things for money and not for God's glory, not for the purpose of the church, is simply not qualified to lead God's people. He cannot be greedy, but then he gives us this list of positives, and again, I think most of these are self-evident in verse eight. But instead of these things, he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
Pastors are called to be above reproach in their family life, in their personal integrity, in their personal walk with the Lord, and they are to be theologically above reproach. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Pastors must be mature in their Christian life in all three phases, in their family life and how they deal with themselves and other people and their relationship to the very Christian faith itself. These are the qualifications for pastors, for elders, for overseers. Now, here's what I want us to do with our remaining time. I don't want this just to be a, a dry, boring list. It's easy to read it that way. Like, okay, I get that, get that. What's that mean? I get that, get that, get that, get that. Okay, got it. I think there's much for us to take away from this. I think there's many, many helpful things in this. One, I've kind of already gotten ahead of myself, and, and I've, I've talked about it before, actually all of them, but let's go back. So here are three things that I think we can all take away from this list of virtues and this list of sins to be avoided. And the first one, I briefly said it already, authority matters. We've had many church movements, very small, but we've had many church movements, specifically in what's called the house church movement, that have oftentimes been very anti-authority. And we're very afraid of giving men authority, especially religious authority, right? Like that's not what the Christian faith is. It's just, it's my relationship with God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my Bible and I'm going to read it and I'm going to understand it and the Spirit's going to talk to me and I'm going to have my relationship and who else is, has any kind of religious authority over me? But you see, Paul's understanding is that the church falls apart without religious authority. Crete, the churches in Crete could not make it if everyone had the mindset of like, listen, it's just my faith, it's my religion, it's my spirit, like we can come together and talk about things, but I mean, it's, ultimately it's up to me. Paul says the churches in Crete fall apart if that's the case. You need leaders. You need pastors. You need shepherds. You need authority. Authority matters. But here's another really important thing that I want us to notice. When it comes to leadership, at least specifically in the church, although I think this has application elsewhere, especially since Paul makes application to family leadership as well. When it comes to leadership, character matters more than gifting. Character matters more than gifting. Gifting is still important. And we're going to talk about that next week. The, the pastor has to have a certain set of gifts that even the most holy man on the face of the earth could not be a pastor without this skill set. Gifting matters. In any position of leadership, gifting matters. Being able to do the job and do the job well is important. But I want us to notice, this is such an amazing thing that Paul does here. And we see this in the book of Acts when they establish what we call prototype deacons to help the widows that are getting an unfair treatment. We see the same thing. Paul says, we need leadership in this position, so who are we going to hire? Well, I know a guy who used to be a marketing exec. I, I knew a guy that was CEO of over 400 people. He took, he took that business from a 50-ground basement, 50-person basement. Now, now they own six buildings and they've got seven locations throughout the world and over 800 employees. That guy knows how to lead. When Paul is looking for deacons, when Paul is looking for pastors, he overwhelms us with holiness. Look at how important character is to Paul. Are you looking for a pastor? He must be above reproach. And then all of these bullet points, it's not until we get to verse 9 that we even start talking about theology and teaching. 
Half of the pastor's job is character. Some of the most published, purchased books in the Christian world are books on leadership. Layla and I, when we visited her family, we stopped at the, we went through the airport in Albuquerque because I forgot we had an airport here. And we were in this little bookstore. She wanted something to read for the flight. She forgot something. So we went to this. They had this really neat little coffee shop slash bookstore. And we were picking something out for her to read on the flight. And I noticed there was this little spinning, you know, uh, assortment of books. that on the top it said, Christian. So I said, oh, let's go look at the Christian books. And I was sorely disappointed. But you want to know what the vast majority of them were? They were Craig Grishel, Andy Stanley books on uh, how to manage uh, your business or how to lead well, leadership strategies, effective leadership, effective management. And you can listen, just listen to some of the most popular preachers. They have leadership podcasts. I know of a podcast super well known called The Leadership Lean-In. One pastor, I actually one time had to sit through an online conference where um, Willow Creek posted this conference for secular and pastors. It was just a leadership conference. And Craig Rochelle, who's currently the pastor of the largest church in America, came out to open up the conference. And on the screen, it said his name. And underneath, it said his vocation. It said his job title. And guess what it didn't say? It didn't say pastor. It said CEO. Paul does not give us a brilliant list of leadership strategies. Oh, things are falling apart in Creed? Well, I've got a 10-step leadership program for you. Things are falling apart, what do you need? You need holy men of God. You need integrity. You need character. We need to understand, no matter your gifting, no matter your skill set, the most important thing you can do wherever God has placed you is be holy. I remember, if, if they don't mind me sharing this, I remember uh, before Samantha was born and Rachel was talking about feeling intimidated to be a mom, which is understandable. And what, what, what motherhood strategies do I have to give her? I can tell her how to be disobedient to her mom. I was pretty good at that a lot of times. But you know what I could confidently say? You want to be a good mom? Be holy. Be righteous. You know what your children need? They don't need necessarily motherhood strategies. Oh, I'm sure there's some good things in that. I'm sure there's a lot of good secular books out there that do help with leadership skills, that do help with parenting, that do help. I'm not saying that this is all worthless junk, but I'm saying far and above, you want to know what you need to be to be a good parent? Be holy. The strategies can come later. Love the Lord your God and follow him in all your ways, and I guarantee your parenting will be successful. You want to be a good student? You want to be a good employee? You want to be a good employer? You want to succeed in these industries? Yeah, you need giftings, you need skill sets, you need to develop all those things. But far and above, you need integrity. Paul says if the church is falling apart, we need holy men of God. The leadership strategies come later. Character matters in leadership. Paul did not jump to charisma or relatability or dynamic engaging preaching, church growth experts, CEOs and marketing whizzes. No, who are the holy men of this town? 
Make them pastors. Paul valued character and holiness along with sound doctrine. And folks, I just have to reiterate how important this is. One pastor in an an outdated commentary, so this is old news, and even one pastor said this, Nothing is more needed in the church than the careful application of the biblical principles of leadership, yet sound, qualified spiritual leaders are alarmingly scarce in contemporary churches. No trend in the church is more damaging to Christ's work than that of failing to discipline and permanently disqualify pastors who have committed gross moral sins. And if a pastor is disciplined and removed from the ministry, he is often readily accepted back into leadership as soon as the negative publicity subsides. Many of the best known and most visible church leaders today utterly fail to measure up to the biblical standards. While growing in worldly popularity and prestige, a leader can spiritually and morally corrupt the very people who eagerly support and idolize him. Churches can rarely survive a failure of leadership. A pastor who has sunken spiritually, doctrinally, or morally and is not disciplined and removed inevitably pulls many of his own people down with him. I cannot tell you how true this is today. Mark Driscoll once started one of the biggest church movements in America, known as Mars Hill. They had multiple online campuses all throughout the country. Thousands of people attended his church. And he ended up falling into gross sin, gross theological error. He was removed from his church by, his, by, by the elders. And now that church has plummeted. They don't exist anymore. He moved to Phoenix and he's raising up another megachurch. Perry Noble was caught for abusing his wife and engaged in drunkardness. He was caught and confessed to regularly being overcome to alcohol and hurting his wife. He was kicked out of his church. He's now started second chance churches and it's a church that's growing like we wouldn't believe. Todd Bentley is a famous charismatic speaker who is, I can't even say the things, because there are children in this room, I can't even say to you the things that he was caught doing. Wicked beyond comparison. And what he did is he joined with, uh, under another pastor leadership and he went through like a two-month rehabilitation process and he's now traveling the country doing all of his, uh, his, his, his revivals and ministries. And... Tulian Chavigian, Billy Grant's stepson, cheated on his wife and married the church secretary and he started his own church again. We have people all over the place. Joel Osteen, Michael Todd, famous for promoting the prosperity gospel. We have greedy, sinful men of God running the biggest churches in our country. Why? Because they're great speakers. They're hysterical. They're really funny, really engaging. Their books are fascinating. And they're the face of the organization, right? Why are people coming to this church? Because of him. They saw him on YouTube. They saw him online. Now they're flocking to that church. Character matters. Book sales don't matter. Engaging preaching doesn't matter. At least not when character is what's missing. The church needs godly men of God. The church needs holy men to run. And and here's the last thing I want you to take away from this. This one's really important. Pastors are supposed to be examples, not replacements. What I mean by that is I've, I've actually, one time I was talking to a friend back in Colorado about these very lists as our church was transitioning to an elder model. And he said, you know, I read this list, but I, these lists, they don't make sense to me because isn't, 
isn't this all of our qualifications? And I said, you see, the, the difference here is that this list of qualifications is not, it's, what you can't think of it is that this is a list of standards that only pastors are to pursue. Rather, what Paul is saying is this is everyone's standards and it's the men who are doing it really well who should be leaders. But these are not pastoral standards. These are pastoral qualifications. These are Christian standards. So in other words, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's very humbling and very scary to preach this text. And I, I hope the other elders in our room are also very intimidated by this. This is a daunting list. And obviously every word I stand up here, I'm accountable to live out. This is my sermon for me. But I would remind you that even if you are not pursuing pastoral ministry, these are still Christian, these, this is your list too. And so I would call you this week to just do some of your own self-examination. Are you being faithful to your spouse? There are lots of ways to be unfaithful to our spouses. Are you being faithful to your spouse? How are you raising your children? How are the lives of your children? Are you arrogant? Are you prideful? Are you a quick-tempered person? Do you lash out in anger? Are you greedy? Do you pursue money above even holiness in God's ways? What's your relationship to alcohol? Can you say no? Are you hospitable? Do you, the Greek word there for is a lover of strangers. Do you love your neighbor? Are you, are you willing to help people in need, bring them into your home when they need? Right, this is not just for me, this is not just for the elders, this is for all of us. Remember, these were men who were already doing this before Titus stepped in and said, hey, you should lead the church. These were men who were already committing themselves to this. So this is not just if you're a pastor, follow this list. This is everyone. Let's follow this list together. This is a great time for us to self-reflect and think about our own character and our own lives and my own vocation and my own ministries and my own families and my own relationships. This should be a humbling text, not just for pastors. For all of us who want to be above reproach, who want to live godly lives that the outside world can't poke holes in. We want to set examples for our friends, set examples for our churches, set examples for our children, set examples for our coworkers. And so, again, just to summarize, character matters. Character is important. Authority and leadership matters. Authority and leadership is important. And lastly, just remember that this is a good generic list for all of us to pursue for all of us to desire in our own lives. And just briefly, I, 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 I want to conclude with this. I need your help. I need your prayers. I need your accountability. It is a terrifying thing to have to imagine standing before you and admitting a disqualifying sin. It is a terrifying thing to have to imagine standing before you and admitting a gross doctrinal change that excludes me from being a pastor of this church. I don't want that. I want to be a pastor of this church as long as I have breath in my lungs. I want to meet these qualifications as long as I have breath in my lungs and I need your help to do that. So be praying for all your elders. Pray for the leadership of this church. Pray for the leadership of the churches in Roswell and the church at large that God would equip and give grace to godly men to help the advance of the local church and to help equip 
all of our family leaders, our parents, with more holiness, more godliness, more character, more integrity, so that we can see the gospel truly break forth into this world.